0: So, Jay, how many Summers brothers are there these days? Three. Right, Scott, Alex, Gabriel. And half. What?
1: I'm Jay Editon.
0: And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did.
1: Welcome to episode 426 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera.
0: And welcome to space!
1: Yep. And specifically, we are in space right now with Bishop and Deathbird, um, who may, at this specific moment in time, take the prize as the X-Men's most dysfunctional couple.
0: Oh, but also maybe most enjoyable? I mean, you know, Gambit and Rogue are split at this point. Scott and Jean are very stable, which is awesome, but, you know, doesn't have any of that juicy, juicy drama. I mean, I guess that she's been dressing up as Phoenix. But still, Bishop and Deathbird, wow.
1: Yeah, so how did they get here?
0: Oh, boy. So, previously in, you know, space, uh, so half the X-Men a little while ago were abruptly recruited into a space war to save the Shi'ar Empire from the evil phalanx during the Operation Zero Tolerance event.
1: The Shi'ar Empire, of course, being the space empire made up of bird people, many of whom are great big jerks, um, and they rule much of the galaxy.
0: One such bird person, albeit a somewhat less jerky one, is Empress Lalandra, She's the current ruler of the Shi'ar Empire, and is also the ex-girlfriend friend of Professor Xavier. Lalandra's
1: sister, on the other hand, is definitely a jerk, and that sister is Deathbird, who was given that name and stripped of her birth name when she tried to take over the Empire and murdered a bunch of people one too many
0: times. Alright, I feel like if you're gonna punish somebody by taking their name away, you should give them, like, a really embarrassing name instead. Deathbird just sounds like the name of a really good metal band. So,
1: so what, what should she have been named instead?
0: I don't know. Newspaper clippings at bottom of Shi'ar Birdcage, maybe. Doesn't really roll off the tongue.
1: Yeah, that's, that just seems... seems Unwieldy for everyone else.
0: Well, maybe that's why they went for Deathbird. Don't know why she didn't start a metal band. Anyway, thanks to an alliance with Deathbird, the X-Men were successful in their fight, and they headed back victorious through an exploding space portal to their home.
1: Apparently dying. Or at least that's what it looked like to everyone in space. Including Bishop, um, who ended up stuck on a different ship with Deathbird. And Deathbird assured him that all of the other men, X-Men had clearly died in the explosion, and that it was only her medical care keeping him alive as he had been paralyzed. However, it turned out, or we, we found out um, in the last issue, that uh, she had actually been keeping him paralyzed using, using uh, medication.
0: Yeah, it's not great. Deathbird uh, is a problematic person on basically every level.
1: So... Bishop, for those of you unfamiliar, by the way, is a mutant cop from the future who came back in time chasing a villain and ended up joining the X-Men of the present day.
0: And, you know, I think we can just leave it at that for a change. We've been doing so much Earth-1191, Bishop-sibling-future-complicated-plotline-stuff lately, and none of it's relevant here. He comes from the future, he came back to the present. That's basically what we need to know. He was a future cop. He's pals
1: with the X-Men. Or, I guess, was until they all apparently died.
0: Again, he also is a dude with some pretty intense chemistry with the aforementioned Deathbird.
1: Which brings us to Uncanny X Men number 358 Lost in Space. Story by Steve Siegel, script by Joseph Harris, pencils by Chris Buchello, inks by Tim Townsend, colors by Steve Bucciolato, letters by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Albert Deshane. So I've been wondering, Miles, I've been thinking about this ever since we started the notes for this, this outline. Do you think Deathbird talks like a parrot?
0: Oh, like a Pollywanna cracker kind of, like, screechy voice? The empire will be mine! And she just keeps repeating herself and just saying, Pretty Deathbird! Pretty Deathbird! Pretty Deathbird! Birds sound like they're in a lot of pain when they talk, at least when we do their voices.
1: So, birds do this weird thing where they talk normally, but then, like, repeat themselves on the inhale, and it's very creepy, and I love it.
0: Oh, is it kind of like that circular breathing thing you have to do when you play the didgeridoo? Would birds be good at playing the didgeridoo?
1: They don't have lips, which I would imagine would make it more difficult.
0: Okay, but the Shi'ar have lips, despite being bird people, which makes me think they would be excellent at playing the didgeridoo. That, in fact, during every Shi'ar ceremony, there's just, like, didgeridoo rumbling in the background constantly. There's just a bunch of Shi'ar hippies hanging out in hot tubs, playing didgeridoos during, like, affairs of state.
1: I am pretty sure that none of the Shi'ar are sufficiently chill to play the didgeridoo.
0: Deathbird sure isn't. Neither was Mad Emperor Daken. He was a mad emperor.
1: Yes, he was, as Deathbird aspires to be.
0: Yeah, yeah, that she does. But, okay, so, this issue's called Lost in Space, and to be fair, our heroes are lost in space. Obviously, that's a reference to the old 60s show, but I found out the movie of Lost in Space uh, that came out in the late 90s, in fact, came out the same year as this issue, so I assume it's also a reference to that. I never saw that movie, did you?
1: No, neither did anyone else, so I can't imagine that they were trying to appeal to that audience.
0: There was a recent uh, Lost in Space reboot with, like, was it Parker Posey as the professor, the scientist?
1: I I, I don't know. I am, I am woefully behind on Lost in Space news.
0: Yeah, yeah, I guess me too. I, I just hear about a lot of things. I don't have time for much TV.
1: I did, however, recently learn that Parker Posey is not Posey Parker, which was a huge relief. Wait, what? So there's someone who goes by Posey Parker, but spelled I-E, who is a massive, massive turf and also fairly Nazi aligned and horrifying and from the UK. Oh. Um uh, she, her, her actual name's something else. But um and 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 I would see things and I'd be like, oh shit, really? But no, no, that's a different person. Parker Posey is a different person.
0: Okay. Well, uh I don't know much about Parker Posey, but hopefully she's better than that and she was great in Josie and the Pussycats, I know that about her.
1: Yeah, she really
0: was. Well, All of that aside, we have our usual creative team for Uncanny X-Men, and that includes Chris Boccello, one of our very favorite artists. And is it me, or is he just getting more and more extreme in some aspects of his art? Like, I know he always draws muscular people as very large, but Bishop is so large. Like, his forearms are thicker than my entire torso! He's huge! He's like the size of a small car! Boccello is at this point starting to approach
1: what I think of as his etch-a-sketch phase.
0: It can be a little hard to tell what the hell's going on sometimes.
1: Like, it's really stylish, but it's it's a little harder to follow than, yeah, than the pacing of a comic should allow. And one of the markers of that phase is is just extreme, ridiculous sexual dimorphism.
0: Oh, we'll see even more of that in the second issue we'll be covering today. But yeah, you're totally right. The dudes are gigantic, and the ladies are significantly less so.
1: So... Now that Deathbird is, is no longer holding Bishop hostage, they're, they're getting along kind of okay, but Bishop is maudlin. He is mourning for not only the world he came from, but the world to which he then emigrated and, and which he has apparently now lost as well.
0: If a man's home is defined by the presence of friends, confidants, and lovers, then 20th century Earth is a place no more home to me than this godforsaken world.
1: And later he
0: comments... The X-Men are more my fellows than my friends, really. Ghosts. Dead men and women who died long before I was even born. So I know Bishop felt like he didn't fit into the X-Men for a long time, like he kept trying to kill criminals and they kept telling him not to, but that was ages ago. He did bond with Storm a great deal, with Gambit, with Jubilee, even with Wolverine, and with Cable. So I don't know, what do we think about this? I mean, this seems weird, but at the same time, I know he's been really out of sorts since his primary mission for coming back in the past was completed, preventing the X-Trader from killing the X-Men.
1: I think this is Bishop doing something that he's. we're going to see him do more explicitly later the issue in the issue which is trying to convince himself that he doesn't miss someone.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think hes it's one of those things where he's protesting too much. But that does at the same time seem to be a bit of how the character's been written more and more. Ever since the X-Trader thing was resolved, he just kind of hasn't known what to do with himself. He's very much like Cable in that regard. Cable was sort of lost for a while after he beat Apocalypse for the first time.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you've got a big life mission and you do it and then you're sort of stuck outside of your time period, I imagine that 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 leads to some mixed feelings. Obviously, I can't speak to this from personal experience yet, but, you know.
0: I like how you say yet. Like, it's inevitable that at some point you're going to be sent into the past to correct some grave wrong that led to our dark future, and then once you do finally fix that, like, you just won't know what to do with yourself.
1: I don't know, man. Do I look like destiny to you?
0: Uh, I don't know. I mean, she mostly wears that gold mask all the time. Point. Well, anyway, Deathbird and Bishop have crash-landed. That's where we left them at the end of the last issue, or I guess in the middle of the last issue, uh, about to crash into a planet, and indeed they have. And here they are. And this
1: planet is fairly hostile. Not only does it have an extremely unwelcoming environment, like akin to a bad disco at 6 o'clock on a Thursday night, um, but our heroes are immediately attacked by raiders. These are the Ursa, a race of scavengers who travel in packs and will never appear or be mentioned outside of these few pages.
0: Yeah, they look like, I don't know, alien monsters. Can we get more specific? I don't know that we really can. But there's a big fight, and Bishop is impaled by a giant harpoon, which we learn later is intended to pierce, like, spaceship hulls. It just goes right through the side of his belly, but he just pulls it out, and he's, you know, hurting a little, but he's basically fine. Do you remember when he first appeared, and he he fell backward onto a bunch of wreckage and was impaled through his abdomen by a big metal drainage pipe? Like, does he just have very durable organs?
1: No, he doesn't have any. In the or, or or they're all like shoved up into a corner of his chest. That's 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 one of one of the ways in which the the human race or, or the mutant race, I suppose, evolves in the future.
0: Oh, okay, is that why he's just so gigantic? Like his entire digestive, circulatory, and respiratory systems are just in one peck. Yeah, the rest of him is just solid bishop meat. Yes. Okay. Well, good. Uh, w- well done, Lucas Bishop. You are made of meat.
1: Now, luckily, Deathbird and Bishop get their own come-with-me-if-you-want-to-live moment, and they get this courtesy of a dude named Carol, who, like Deathbird and Bishop, was shot down by another race of aliens called the Chnit? The Chnit? Chnit.
0: I think it's- or it could be, like, a Hebrew pronunciation. It could be Chnit.
1: Chnit? I- I don't know. Maybe Chnit? Um... Anyway, so the Chnit are, are, it's spelled C-H-N-I-T-T, and if you've got guesses, yours are as good as ours. Um, they are big arachnoid aliens who, again, are never gonna appear outside of this issue, but who do play a significantly more, well, significant role than the Ursa. Unfortunately, the Chnit have also found and wrecked Carol's camp, so they've got really nowhere to go. Um, so Carol decides they're gonna take them to the inevitable CD bar, which is complete with C-3PO's head on the mantle.
0: Yeah, that's the most obvious reference. I'm sure there are other little references peppered in here and there about other science fiction. Um, I didn't notice them myself as I was taking notes, but well, it, there's there's
1: funny. there's a shelf of science fiction novels and 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 books below the the head that's got uh, like Poe and Heinlein and a bunch of stuff on it
0: oh yeah that's less a reference and more uh, a library but that was really fun as well um what i really like is how they get there and how they get everywhere else in this issue they do that thing like from old movies where you'll see them on their sort of space desert scooter dealie floating with a dotted line behind them that's like covering a map of the world with all the place names you know highlighted it's very indiana jones which weirdly super fits this type of story
1: oh absolutely and in the process of their travels, they learn a little bit more about Carol, um, who is from a planet that's been ravaged by the Chnit, and he is here to find a powerful weapon that can take them down. And this weapon, we're going to learn, is something called Nullifier Charges, and when unleashed, they eat whatever metal they come into contact with. And Carol has managed to source three of them.
0: That that seems dangerous. There's a lot of stuff made of metal out there.
1: Yeah, this is, this is definitely a Hail Mary pass. Um, but... What I assume, because he needs multiple charges, is that they're, they're, um, that they run themselves out, that they, they only eat so much metal and then they stop, not that they, like, eat metal and the metal, you know, fuels them to eat more metal and you get an ice nine scenario.
0: Okay, so basically they just get full and they're like, nah, I'm good. Yeah. I bet they still have room for dessert after that, though.
1: What's dessert?
0: Uh, I don't know. A metal parfait? Metal macarons? a steel pie for those who recognize that reference.
1: So, anyway, most of Carol's planet is pacifist, but he is scrappy and therefore an outcast just like mutants.
0: Well, and especially like Bishop. I mean, Carol is using his aggression to protect his more timid people, even though they give him shit for being such a big warlike jerk. And that's exactly the situation Bishop found himself in in the present day of Earth 616. Like, he very much considers himself a defender, a protector, and somebody who, part of how he does that is he martyrs his reputation, almost, to do what needs to be done, the types of violent tasks that other people don't have the stomach to do.
1: Now, Carol's plan is to get to the planet's warp gate, which is in a major city, and use that to get home. Uh, the Chnit have this planet under siege, but they can't take out that city where the warp gate is without breaking their orbital blockade. So it's been safe so far for at least a very limited value of safe.
0: As far as Bishop and Deathbird, though, they've got their own plans. I mean, they like this Carol guy all right, but Bishop really wants to get back to Earth to the present day. And Deathbird wants to take over the Shi'ar Empire with Bishop as her consort.
1: It's weird that he finds this at all surprising.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, she's been flirting hard with him for a long time. They've definitely hooked up before. Oh no, I meant the taking over the Shi'ar Empire part.
1: Like, that has been her only goal since her first appearance. It's what she
0: does. Well, at least since her first appearance as specifically being a member of this alien race of the Shi'ar, when she first appeared, she was just a cut-rate Ms. Marvel villain without much context.
1: Oh, that is a good point.
0: Yeah, yeah, how the, uh, not-mighty have... risen.
1: But this conflict leads to one of my favorite exchanges between Bishop and Deathbird.
0: I am a man of principles, Deathbird.
1: Principles? are inhibitions?
0: Yeah, they are so much fun together. They're like the murdery odd couple.
1: And the Jeanette keep finding them and finding them. It turns out they've been tipped off by Carol's bartender friend, too, whom the Jeanette also, you know, killed to cover their tracks.
0: And we actually meet this guy briefly before this. I love his design. He would have looked right at home in Bocello's Generation Next Age of Apocalypse miniseries. Oh, like, you're absolutely right. Yeah, he's, he's got this very stripy outfit. He's got this craggy gray face and too many arms and lots of rings and earrings and cigars and martinis. And these improbably stripy square glasses. Like, he's just so maximalist. He's such a Bocello monster man, and I love him.
1: Alas for our heroes... Just as they're about to arrive at the warp gate, the chnit decide they're going to break their barricade, and they send their mothership down to destroy the gate. Well, shit. So Carol and Deathbird want to just run through the gate, get back to Carol's planet, kick some chnit ass. Um, Bishop feels otherwise. Bishop sees his main purpose as a protector, and he wants to stay behind. He wants to help the people who are about to be killed by the chnit.
0: Uh, Deathbird says, fuck that, and says she's just gonna leave him behind, but Corral respects the hell out of this, and at Bishop's request, gives Bishop one of the three nullifier charges.
1: Uh, meanwhile, there's a split page of Bishop and Deathbird, each reluctantly convincing themselves that they have no choice but to leave the other, and it's really solid.
0: It is, yeah, Deathbird keeps saying, I will forget Bishop, and Bishop keeps saying, I will forget Deathbird, and, like, that parallel makes it clear what a bond they genuinely do have, like, how connected they are past just sexual attention, and also how much Deathbird is starting to change through her exposure to Bishop's heroism.
1: So Bishop does manage to blow up the schnitz ship, and he gets to the gate just in time to see Carol go through, at which point the gate collapses, and it turns out Deathbird waited for him after all.
0: Oh yeah, she's a total dick about the whole thing, but, like, clearly she has chosen being with this big, meaty man over, once again, trying to take over her sister's empire. At least, you know, for the moment.
1: It's because he's so large. He's got significant gravitational
0: pull. Oh, okay, she actually couldn't leave. It was impossible.
1: Or she would have had to summon up, you know, more effort than she felt like exerting at the time.
0: Just imagining her just flying around Bishop in a circle, just orbiting him and just berating him the whole time.
1: An ellipse.
0: Yeah, that's true. It would be elliptical.
1: Anyway, they're terrible for each other, and it's great. Uh, we also get a brief aside in Alaska, the main purpose of which is to see Jean getting hit with the Cywar fallout and losing her telepathy, which obviously happens.
0: Uh, yeah, and the way Michelle draws that is awesome! She's getting hit with this giant lightning bolt and surrounded by these toothy, screaming mouths and clusters of panicked-looking eyes. It's so messed up looking, it's very Shadow King, even with his name not being mentioned here.
1: More importantly, this particular side of this particular issue does mark the first appearance of Cyclops' Captain America teddy bear.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, his friends are helping uh, him pack, and uh, Beast is very amused by it, and Jean says she won it for him. Like, at a carnival, I assume? Or maybe from sweepstakes? I don't know.
1: I, I would assume at a carnival. I bet Jean cheats at carnival games.
0: Oh, I bet she totally does, and then she just has a quiet smile to herself. Good for her. This era's Jean Grey is so frickin' great.
1: So, Bishop and Deathbird's space adventures, in fact, continue. And they continue in a weird one-shot called Team X 2000, number one, Paradox Lost.
0: Team X 2000. So, our younger listeners would not have grown up through this, but when we were young, 2000 meant the future. Like, if you said that something was something 2000, it was, it was futuristic. There was a popular computer brand called Gateway 2000. They did later change their name to Gateway once 2000 was no longer the future, but it sounded pretty cool until then. And so, yeah, you would just you would just throw 2000 on the end of anything, and everyone agreed like, oh yeah, that's, that's awesome is what that is.
1: I mean, doesn't Mega Man canonically take place in the first decade of, two,
0: of the 2000s? Uh, I think it's 2000 X, and then maybe Mega yeah. Man's 20 XDX. There was also a Strong Bad parody that did that. I get them all mixed up, but there were X's involved.
1: The point is, the the 2000s were were highly, highly futuristic. And in fact, this comic, uh, despite its title, takes place in the 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 still far futuristic year of 2018.
0: Indeed, it does. Can you
1: imagine what the world's going to be like in 2018, Miles?
0: Uh, I assume we're gonna have, uh, jetpacks, uh, an excellent utopian government, uh, we're gonna have fixed global warming, it's gonna be amazing.
1: Sorry, that was really depressing, actually, in retrospect.
0: No, well, I, uh, I shouldn't
1: have, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have played that gag. Like, now, now I'm just really sad.
0: Oh, well, let's talk about a really silly comic, and maybe that will cheer us up. This silly comic was written by Sean Ruffner and Alan Smithy, penciled by Kevin Lau, inked by Sean Parsons, Marlo Akiza, and Cabin Boy, colored by Kevin Tinsley and Sean Ruffner, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Albert DeShane.
1: Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This written by Alan
0: Smithy? Oh yes, that's a name, or rather a title, we've heard before.
1: So Alan Smithy is a name that is used by directors who feel that they have lost control over the final product of a film to the extent that they can no longer ethically attach their names to it as directors. So those those movies are directed by Alan Smithy, spelled S-M-I-T-H-E-E.
0: Yeah, so uh, seldom a good sign. So I looked into this, because this isn't the most amazing comic in the world, but it's totally fine. And I think what was going on was that a writer named D.G. Chichester, who we've uh, read before, he wrote Wolverine Inner Fury, the weird Moby Dick Wolverine story drawn by Sienkiewicz. Oh, Um, dang. Anyway, he was having a dispute with Marvel at the time. Uh, He was writing Daredevil in the mid-90s, but he learned he was going to be replaced by someone from the editorial team. And so for his last few issues as a form of protest, he decided to be credited as Alan Smithy. This is years later, but he still wanted to be Alan Smithy even though he decided to come back. Don't really know what was going on there, but um, anyway, yes, the Wolverine Interfury guy. Okay, then. As for Kevin Lau, Jay, do you remember Kevin Lau?
1: Yeah, he did the end of the Shatterstar saga, right?
0: Uh, yeah, in X-Force, and also the side story right after about Domino rescuing Karma siblings from Shinobi Shaw. Right, so, He is a very, very, very anime slash manga uh inspired artist. Like we say that about people like Joe Madareira, Kevin Lau is even more. And I think where that mostly comes through, we had talked about sexual dimorphism before in art, and his art, it's like it's like it's two different artists drawing male and female characters.
1: It's Like like they're two different species
0: i know like it's basically all of his women are drawn like sailor moon and all of his men are drawn like guts from berserk like they look so different the women are all soft and and tiny and have giant eyes and tiny mouths and the men are just these gigantic craggy monstrous beefcakes.
1: that's bizarre not only because of the dimorphism but because he draws them in two really different art styles
0: yeah yeah it almost seems like even the inkers are like i don't know we'll just ink these differently why not
1: so, we, we open with Deathbird and Bishop in, in a ship that they've managed to piece together from stolen parts from this planet they were stuck on. And Deathbird is telling Bishop about, about a recurring dream she's been having.
0: And I appreciate that, like, actual dreams you're trying to tell someone about, it only vaguely makes sense. Like, she's sitting at the opposite end from her sister, Lalandra, at one of those big, long, rich people dining room tables. And the servant brings her a covered dish, but instead of having food inside, it has a note with the word gith on it. Which she explains are these scary, three-eyed giant rat things from the Shiar homeworld. Apparently, she used to have to listen to them eat each other when her parents locked her in something called the Mercy Box to punish her? Wow. I mean, I think Deathbird's terrible, but if part of your childhood involves listening to rats eat each other while you're stuck in something called the mercy box, like, I have a little more sympathy for her. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, in this dream, uh, the servant then takes Deathbird to the cellar, which is full of those gift things, and she tears them apart with her claws before returning to the table, but, like, then her sister's not there, and all that's left on the table is a dead bird and a dish, and she's about to bite its head off, and then she wakes up, and she doesn't know whether she would have eaten it or not. So that's how this comic starts. Welcome to Team X 2000, listeners. And and it really kind of takes a cue from that. It does. Now, I will say, I really enjoy this issue. It is bonkers, but in a way that I find quite fun. Bishop's take on this dream as they're talking and playing chess is, oh, it's just space dementia, a.k.a. space madness, as we've we've heard from 90s Nickelodeon. Her take, though, is that it's a vision from the Shi'ar goddess, Shara, trying to guide her. She mentions at this point that all the Shi'ar deities are female. That'll actually be contradicted many years later in Jason Aaron's Thor run, when Jane Foster as Thor fights Shara and Kithri, the two main Shi'ar deities.
1: So, Bishop is trying to teach Deathbird chess to to while away the hours on their voyage, and... She is not good at it, because she's just really bloodthirsty, and she also feels like having having the individual moves don't make sense, the king shouldn't be defenseless, any foot soldier who can only attack diagonally is worthless, and so on and so forth.
0: And so Bishop says, hey, maybe this applies to your weird-ass dream. Maybe what the dream means is that while you want to be a ruler, really, you're just acting as a killer. You just keep finding yourself in this role, and that your lust for bloodshed leaves your people, like that dead bird, defenseless. This is a confusing parallel, but the narrative effort being put forth here, this type of symbolism, I actually really enjoy. And I kind of feel like this would fit for Bishop, because he's not a philosopher. He tries to be, but all he really knows how to be is a cop, a soldier. So seeing this softer side of him, I think works especially well because he's not amazing at it.
1: Well, and he's in the rare position of being contrasted against someone who's a good deal more violent than he is.
0: Oh, yeah. I think that's what's most fun about Bishop and Deathbird's dynamic, is, like, they're the same vague archetype in some ways, but we're used to seeing Bishop being the biggest hard-ass on the block, and now his up-and-coming girlfriend leaves him in the dust. She makes him look like a pacifist.
1: Not only a pacifist, but, but yeah, a celibate one, because while he wants to pass the time as they continue by playing more chess, she thinks they should pass the time by fucking, Bishop disagrees, and Deathbird is kind of offended because... She is a big deal, and if she has declared him to be worthy of her, he should be honored.
0: It's so much fun. Also, I mean, we were talking about how odd Kevin Lau's art style is between men and women, but when you're trying to contrast characters the way the story is trying to contrast them, having them look that different actually is kinda cool. Like Bishop's face is huge and lined and shadowy and hers is tiny and soft and cute. And like I know Deathbird as cute is weird, but I like the juxtaposition.
1: The juxtaposition is interesting. Deathbird is cute, and specifically Deathbird is extremely childlike, I'm less of a fan
0: of. I would agree with that. Thankfully, her outfit is a scary-looking outfit. It's got, like, spikes and weird metal tubes, and it's all armored and stuff, so she still looks very badass. I will give Lau that.
1: Anyway... As they are traveling on, trying to figure out what to do, they hear a garbled message in English and Shi'ar, and they see a giant Star of David in space, and Bishop figures it's a rescue portal home, because he's forgotten that at least one other race of Marvel aliens are Jewish.
0: Uh, oh, that's that's true. Uh, that was confirmed by Greg yeah. Rucca about 400-something episodes ago in this very show.
1: For some reason, I thought you were going to say about 400-something years ago.
0: <laughs> I mean, sometimes it feels that way. Uh, The fact that the portal is a Star of David is uh, not apparently significant at all. It It just happens to be... But they do go through, and in the colorful, comic-style version of outer space on the other side, which I love, I love that comics, outer space is just full of big, colorful nebulas and clouds and shit. Anyway, on in all that, on the other side, uh, they see a whole lot of Shi'ar warships. Which is weird, because they look at their geographic scanner thingamabob, and they're just on the other side of Earth's moon from Earth. It's weird that the Shi'ar would have, like, most of their force here.
1: Oh, shit. That can't be good.
0: It's not, and neither is Earth. Earth is pretty different. New York City is apparently the center of the new Shi'ar Empire, as we learn from the narration. And, as is often the case, when you really want to show how fucked up Earth is, you show the Statue of Liberty broken or buried or sunken or something, and, um, yeah, it's now just uh, half-sunken in the bay outside the now very alien-looking Manhattan where a ceremony is occurring. Right,
1: and this ceremony commemorates the union between the Earth's nations and the Shi'ar Empire. Which is ruled over by none other than Alana Naramani, that's Lelandra's daughter and the new majestrix of the Empire.
0: Now this is a character we have not seen before. Right, and we'll never see again. That's true, that's true. Lelandra, of course, is the one who's been ruling the Shi'ar Empire. Before her was her brother Mad Emperor Daken, before him was, I assume, a lot of other bird jerks. Uh, but she's new, she's Lelandra's daughter- Uh, She's also surrounded by various guards who are straight-up D&D goblins in space armor, like it's freaking Warhammer 40k or something, and also by her court of assorted bird-themed folks from Earth. She is all about her birdie branding. Right.
1: Her official consort is Angel, who has got sleek mechanical sheaths over part of his wings.
0: He is clearly just her boy toy. Like, she doesn't respect him at all. He tries to help, and she's like, that's nice, dear, go to sleep. Uh, there's also Sauron, everyone's favorite wear pterodactyl, who has this like blade thing covering his pterodactyl beak and this ridiculous golden armor that would fit in very well in an episode of He-Man. I love this stupid look. I love it so much.
1: You think the metal thing on his beak makes him talk funny?
0: Uh I, I think it does. I think he probably already talked funny. I think mainly he just cuts his tongue a whole lot. Oh, That probably makes him talk funny more than the metal thing.
1: She is visited at this point by by vulture who offers her, quote, a gift from the lower regions.
0: Oh, that's going to be my new pickup line from now on.
1: It looks like a brick.
0: Uh, I mean, okay, I won't do the brick part in the pickup line. Uh, It's a box. Or maybe it's a brick that's hollowed out. I don't know. I don't know how the Shi'ar do things.
1: Maybe it's just a really nice brick. It's like, here, it's a brick. It's for you. It's... Have fun.
0: I recall hearing a story about some scientists studying a brick one time. Shut up, man. Hey. <laughs> There's also, lastly, in the biggest reach, her pet songbird, Dazzler, who's like singing the Shi'ar inaugural songs. You know, I mean, she could have gotten Jay Guthrie, aka Icarus, that being... The Guthrie with bird wings, who plays a bunch of music and has an angelic voice, but uh, he won't show up as Icarus with his wings until a 2004 Chuck Austin comic. He did, though, appear first in 1984. I didn't realize that until I looked it up. He appeared in ROM annual number three for the first time, also the first appearance of Paige Guthrie, the girl who would later become Husk of Generation X, and a freaking annual of a comic based on a toy. I love the Marvel Universe. And also
1: presumably a whole bunch of other Guthries who may or may not have continued to exist.
0: Oh man, like the Guthries exist in a state of constant quantum flux.
1: So, speaking of of flux and weird families, let's talk about Majestrix Alana.
0: Let's talk about her look. So Kevin Lau, uh, we've talked about how weird the gender thing is, of course. Kevin Lau is a great costume designer and we see that here she's got this red and white and gold very regal outfit uh the fabric folds are quite realistic as are the way that it interacts with her skin as it like pinches certain areas and and whatever uh she's got that giant those giant eyes and tiny mouth that kevin lau tends to draw his women with but she looks badass I mean, okay, except for the random midriff cutout. But, you know, it's the Shi'ar. They do these things. Uh, Interestingly, she also looks much more human than Lalandra. Lalandra had that characteristic Shi'ar hair that's very triangular. It's plumage, yeah, triangular and feathery. Looks a little bit like the hair of the Centauri from Babylon 5. But Alana has human hair, just long, dark hair. She doesn't have any feathers along her forearms or as part of her hair. She just kind of looks like a human, which is interesting.
1: And Deliberate, which we'll find out a little bit more about later.
0: But let's not spend too much time with this various bird-themed troupe. What's up with Bishop and Deathbird?
1: Well, their ship is boarded and they're captured. Deathbird is taken to Alana, who is very excited to meet her legendary Aunt Deathbird. And uh, Bishop is thrown into a prison cell.
0: Aunt Deathbird? Oh, man, I had, like, an Aunt Debbie and an Aunt Joy. Aunt Deathbird sounds way cooler. Like right? she would be in a metal band.
1: Yeah, she's your cool aunt. Your your <laughs> murder aunt.
0: Your cool murder aunt, Deathbird. I mean, Wolverine's a murder uncle. Yeah. Do you think they're married? I bet they're divorced.
1: Wolverine and Deathbird?
0: Yeah, yeah, it didn't work out.
1: That makes a weird lot of sense. There's gotta be at least one continuity where they've got, like, some random kid.
0: Oh, and Wolverine's paying child support, and they're always talking shit about each other to the kids, and the kids are really uncomfortable with it. It's just very toxic.
1: You took this in some kind of strange directions, Miles. I
0: don't know. I mean, Aunt Deathbird, she's had a rough life. Anyway, Alana explains a little bit of context. This is, like you mentioned, Jay, THE FUTURE, 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 FUTURE. And Lalandra is dead. Alana's mom is dead. She died in the recent war between Earth and the Shi'ar Empire. As Alana puts it, The humans feared the Shi'ar
1: were conspiring to overtake the Earth, so we were forced to.
0: Oh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's a decade later than Bishop and Deathbird were lost in space. Instead of 1998, it's 2018. We won't worry too much about the Marvel sliding timeline here, because that gets complicated. So that portal was in fact a time warp a time warp into another alternate future. this is officially Earth 9922 according to the Marvel database party on Bishop is taken from his filthy prison cell to meet up with Deathbird who had asked after him and he finds her getting a massage from two anime servant girls while she's in a hot tub. It looks very uh very very royal, very royal and and decadent. And she attempts him out of his clothes and into the tub as well. And the tub's pretty good. I mean, it's no like cable and dominoes giant bathtub they could get lost in, but it's pretty good.
1: Yeah, it'll do. I assume that that bathtub was destroyed in the war.
0: Oh, one of many tragic losses. Deathbird also tries to connect with Bishop, like she's putting in effort other than just saying, hey, I think you're cool, so we should definitely be together and your opinion doesn't matter, like she really is trying to bond with him. She even mentions when she sees how uncomfortable he is with all of this luxury, she even mentions about how Bishop's people, which probably means mutants, but I mean, she might be talking about race, probably not. Anyway, she mentions that they've had a hard time with the Terran caste system, so she kind of gets it. And this is something that I think this last issue and this issue do well. We're seeing Deathbird, if not soften, at least start to think through things a little more, to start to see pe- people as people, not just herself as the only person who matters.
1: A kinder, if not particularly gentler Deathbird.
0: Very much so, yeah. And this is interesting because I don't know how much Bishop himself is really changing. Like, I guess he learns to be a little more proactive, rather than just sort of reactive the way he's been, but it's much more minor. It really does seem to be an example of the hero improving the villain just by being heroic, and I don't think I'm inherently against that. I think it might be a little more interesting if there was a bit more give and take, though.
1: So what would Bishop... what 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 should Bishop learn about himself from Deathbird?
0: I mean, I think the main thing he could learn at this point is how to connect to people, how to actually open up to them instead of closing himself off so he doesn't keep losing the people he cares about. I mean, he's been through so much, you know, he lost his best friends Malcolm and Randall from the future, he lost his sister Shard more than once, now he's lost the X-Men, so I can see him being all walled up emotionally, so it would be nice to see Deathbird get him to, I don't know, be more of an actual human being instead of the sort of robotic exterior he's been presenting.
1: Does she care enough to like, I get that she likes him, but I, I don't really see like meaningful, intensive coupled dialogue being part of her
0: repartee. That's a really good point. Yeah. I mean, she has many strengths. That's not one of them. Like her main way of interacting with the world is through violence and confidence. So she could maybe instill some more confidence in him. He's already got the violence. But uh, yeah, I don't think she'd be a, a great therapist. Maybe sense of fun. Maybe sense of fun. She does enjoy her work, her bloody, bloody work. Now,
1: Bishop is, is frustrated about the class stuff, but that's not what's really getting to him. What's really getting to him is that he is stuck in another fucking dark future.
0: Seriously, there have been so many. He was born in one, then he got stuck in Age of Apocalypse, for I will remind everyone 30 years that he still mostly remembers, three goddamn decades, even though he didn't actually end up aging in the long run, and now he's here.
1: It really sucks to be Bishop.
0: Yeah, I don't know if it sucks more or less than it sucks for Alex Summers. I think it sucks more dramatically, but uh, neither of them has a good life. See, my,
1: my point of comparison was going to be Colossus.
0: Oh, Colossus with his entire family just being murdered one after another? Like, with Colossus, you almost expect someone to just show up uh, at the front door like, Hey, I'm your long-lost cousin so-and-so, and then just exploding for no reason? Yes. Like a drummer from Spinal Tap?
1: Exactly like that, in
0: fact. Well, anyway, the next day, Alana takes Deathbird, and she guesses Bishop, fine, whatever, on a tour of the city, where Alana is super shitty to all of the starving humans.
1: And it's very obvious that this is, this is not actually an alliance. This is the Shi'ar Empire having taken over Earth and installed a class system in which humans are an underclass.
0: Oh, very much so.
1: But the humans do still have their champions, and those champions choose this moment to attack- Who've we got fighting on the human side?
0: Well, let's see. Cable leads, and Falcon does machines. Vertigo is cool, but rude, and Longshot is a party dude. That's right, we have a grab bag of random heroes, X-Men and not. I mean, the Falcon. Like, the guy who's currently Captain America, but at this time was mostly known for being able to telepathically talk to a bird? Just one? I guess more. Mainly just one. Mainly Red Wing. That's, that's very Red B of him. It is, right? Uh, I'm always happy to see Longshot. He doesn't do a ton in this issue, but it's always fun to see him. And Vertigo, that's a character that is not initially familiar. We've heard the name Vertigo before. Vertigo was a Savage Land Mutate and a Marauder. But this Vertigo is wearing sort of a green outfit with, like, yellow piping and complicated pads and stuff, because Kevin Lau does love drawing complicated costumes. She has long black hair, she has some cool goggles, she seems to have some sort of energy powers. She looks rad.
1: Vertigo, we will find out, is in fact Jubilee.
0: So I always kind of like this, when we have a future timeline, and, like, the young character now clearly has come a long way and has been through a lot. I think that's a fun way to, like, just show how much time has passed and how much the people of that future have been through.
1: Alana, meanwhile, is doing everything she can to flatter Deathbird, to get Deathbird on her side.
0: Oh, yeah, the way that she talks about what the rebels are doing.
1: They denigrate the very laws your war journals inspired.
0: And the narration makes it very clear how flattery will get Alana everywhere.
1: Alana's words touch Deathbird's soul, magnifying feelings of rabid pride.
0: Pride is totally hydrophobic. But wait a minute, let's go back a step. Deathbird's war journals? Like, like the Punisher's war journals? I mean, I guess she does seem like somebody who would smack someone.
1: That's what she and Bishop have been doing in space. Smacking.
0: (laughs) Smacking in space. That's the title of this arc. And maybe this episode.
1: So... One of the heroes, Falcon, is straight-up killed, Longshot is injured and captured, and Cable and Vertigo manage to grab Bishop and get back to their home base. And Bishop trusts Cable.
0: He's another man trapped in a temporal paradox. Of all the X-Men, he and I are most akin which is fascinating, because it totally makes sense, but of course Bishop and Cable are going to be not only rivals, but, like, vicious, brutal nemeses for a period of years and years, when they're fighting over the fate of Hope Summers, running through the future as Bishop kills everyone.
1: And back at the headquarters, Bishop meets the boss, whose words give him away before his look.
0: Back from the grave, eh, Bishop. Wherever you were, you should have stayed there, bub. In case you haven't noticed, it's a birdcage up there, and we're the lining.
1: And Wolverine is missing an eye. He's got an eye patch, which is fascinating, because I would have thought by this point in continuity his healing factor was hardcore enough that he would have grown it back.
0: Uh, maybe. I mean, we learned that his eye was ripped out by Sauron, and Sauron has energy draining power, so maybe he drained his healing factor from, like, just that part of his face. But what amuses me even more is that he's wearing an eye patch over his Wolverine mask, and we know what happens when Wolverine wears an eye patch. That's his big disguise. That's how he was disguised for a while in Madripoor and was so shocked that people knew who he really was. Do you think he thinks he's in disguise right now, that nobody knows he's really Wolverine, that they think he's just some random other dude?
1: Oh, shit. You may be right.
0: (laughs) So the heroes, including Doctor Doom, I love that. You know it's a really dark future when you see, like, the big bad allied with the rebels. Anyway, they explain to Bishop how the world went to hell.
1: Lalandra had come to Earth for help with a Shi'ar civil war. And there, there had been a summit with, with most of the X-Men, with most of the Avengers, with Lilandra in, in the X-Mansion, and her enemies had blown up the X-Mansion from orbit, taking out Lilandra and most of Earth's mightiest heroes in one fell swoop.
0: And, uh, surprise, apparently it was Lalandra's daughter, Alana, behind the whole thing, because she'd been reading her cool Aunt Deathbird's journals, and those journals had taught her that the best way to live life is to be terrible and kill everyone, and so she did.
1: Oh, and her dad was, in fact, Charles Xavier, as you may have guessed by now. Oh, and she has telepathy.
0: Uh, All of these things are true, and so that part's fascinating. Lalandra, and Xavier's kid, ruling the Shi'ar Empire— if that sounds familiar, you've probably read some comics over the last ten years. Because right now in the main continuity, Xavier and Lalandra do indeed have a daughter, who who hatched from an egg. It was a it was a whole thing. She first appeared in 2018. Uh, she's actually pretty cool. She's quite nice.
1: 2018, so the year that this story takes place.
0: Oh shit, you're right. I'm just going to go ahead and say, yeah, that was definitely deliberate. I think Kelly Thompson wrote the miniseries where Xandrus Egg first appeared. So, Kelly Thompson, well done doing this very complicated, subtle callback that we're sure you completely did deliberately.
1: And if you didn't do it deliberately, then good job with that, too.
0: Take credit. I say take credit. Uh, anyway, the surviving heroes built a bunch of space-time portals to try to bring in help by sending distress signals through them— Uh, And then went on to protect the Morlocks, which in this future is the new name for all refugees and rebels. The name for the team protecting said Morlocks, the name for the heroes themselves Team X. Wait a minute. Uh, yeah, Team X uh, was, of course, the team Wolverine was on with, like, Sabretooth and Maverick and people back in the day. So it seems kind of weird he would name this team Team X, because that first one he's got some pretty negative associations with. But here we are, Team X.
1: Maybe he's taking it back.
0: He's taking it back. I mean, uh, Kate Pride took the name Marauders back. Uh, anyway, here we are, Team X. Not Team X 2000, however, because this is in 2018. So...
1: With Bishop on their side, their big plan is to infiltrate Deathbird's upcoming ascension ceremony, and they're going to do this by way of the Vulture, who is is you know, weak-willed enough that they can threaten him to help them get in.
0: And he totally does. Uh, he talks his way through the guards, bringing the truck that contains the heroes through the checkpoint— And part of how he does so is through bribery. Specifically, he bribes a Shi'ar soldier with a Wu-Tang Clan CD that the soldier had wanted. You know, the appeal of martial arts-themed 90s hip-hop ain't nothing to fuck with.
1: Despite the hero's assault on the base, it's ultimately Deathbird, and specifically Deathbird's pride, that's going to lead to Alana's fall.
0: Because Alana offers a gift to Deathbird to commemorate her rejoining the family and becoming the new regent of Earth, she offers Deathbird her original name back, the one that was struck from the records because Deathbird had been too much of a criminal jerk. Uh, That name is Kalsai Narmani, but that actually doesn't come up here. Deathbird, however, is furious at this gift. Does Alana even know her at all? Does Alana even go here? Exactly. Exactly.
1: You say that you've studied my views and beliefs, that you know me. Then you know I would never accept this. This name means nothing to me now. I am Deathbird, Bird, first born of the house of Naramani. You won't buy my support, child. Your mother failed to reign me or defy me. What made you believe you would succeed? I reject your boon, and all I would sacrifice to accept it.
0: And it is time for a big royal bird fight.
1: Yeah, so Team X, meanwhile, is fighting their way to the palace's shield generator.
0: And unfortunately, the detonator they were going to use that was tied to it to blow it up safely is destroyed in a fight with Sauron. So Bishop says, you know what? Fuck it, in for a penny, in for a pound. And shoots the generator a whole bunch causing it to start to explode, at which point he starts to absorb all of that explodey energy into his body. This is clearly going to kill him. Like, all of his allies are, they try to tell him not to, he insists he's going to, they say goodbye, that he'll be remembered. Like, this is his great, big, heroic sacrifice. But
1: salvation comes from an unexpected direction.
0: A pterodactyl man!
1: That's right. Uh, Sauron is also all about absorbing energy, and he joins the party, grabbing Bishop tightly from behind in an absorption daisy chain, and, um... It is...
0: it is extremely sexual. I mean, even the narration... just listen to it, listeners. The lecherous Birdman consumes more
1: than he can stand, and yet he wants more.
0: Sauron is so, um, well, you know... Never have I been so charged, I... Wait, wait! Too much juice for you?
1: And then in Bishop's thoughts...
0: Bodies on fire. Have to hold in until...
1: The ship you just never expected.
0: Well then! Uh, okay, so there were two writers and one penciler and a whole bunch of inkers, and, like, they, they had to know what they were, were doing here, right?
1: I... I have no idea. I I know from experience how easy it is for something to get past multiple lines of creators and editors who are reading their intentions rather than what's actually on the page, but, like, this is a lot. Again, it's very
0: sexual. It's very sexual! Uh, we'll definitely put this in the visual companion. Listeners, you've, you've got to see this. It's amazing. Uh, anyway, it works out fine, because, um... Bishop just gives Sauron more than he can take, and uh, Bishop walks away, and Sauron is, um, I mean, I guess he explodes, uh, you know, from that whole thing.
1: Which brings us back to um, Alada and Deathbird, who fight more conventionally.
0: Uh, yes, Uh, I mean, they're, like, super closely related, so maybe that's for the best. Uh, So apparently Alana has spent her whole life studying Deathbird's combat techniques, which makes sense. She was clearly obsessed with her Aunt Deathbird. I mean, that name's so cool. How could she not be? Also, Alana's a telepath, which means she's really good at predicting whatever her opponents are going to do. So by all rights, Alana should be prepared. However, Deathbird has changed. I mean, she's learned a lot from Bishop. Specifically, she's learned to actually think think about what she's doing instead of just charging blindly forward so she's learned enough caution and calm to easily defeat her future niece and also she's learned enough mercy to then spare her she feels weird about this but she explains
1: her death would solve nothing it would only justify the vile reputation my people have garnered let her live with the knowledge that she is far from my equal
0: Compassion is not a sign of weakness, Deathbird. Quite the opposite. It shows honor. I am proud of you. There may be hope for you yet.
1: They kiss, and while there isn't actually a smack sound effect, I think we can take it as red.
0: Oh, very much so. So, yes, uh, the good guys win, and uh, Deathbird and Bishop go back through the portal to presumably get home. Uh, spoiler, they have a lot of weird shit ahead of them before they do as Team X thanks them. Uh, And a little detail I love here is, you remember how Doctor Doom was a part of Team X? Cable's like, hey, I hope you can stay with us and fight with us. And Doom's like, dude, this world doesn't have good leadership right now. Obviously, I'm going to go take over the world. We'll see if we're on the same side next time we meet.
1: And Bishop and Deathbird, for their part, will stay together for the next couple years of
0: comics. So there we go, Team X 2000, after a Bishop and Deathbird-themed single-issue story in Uncanny. Uncanny. I mean, I'm not going to say this is super important to continuity. I'm not going to say these are like the classic comics to end all classic comics. They're really fun, though.
1: They are. They're One of the things that I like about the space stuff is it's a total break from the mutant metaphor. It's a total break from, you know, Earth class system mutant politics stuff. It's just weird space opera.
0: Yeah, I mean, those things are, like, mentioned because those are part of some of the characters' backgrounds, but for the most part, they're just dealing with wacky alien shit and wacky alien worlds and wacky alternate futures. This
1: is what the X-Men have instead of a coffee shop AU.
0: (laughs) They have the space war AU? Yeah.
1: I love that. They go there for vacations.
0: Vacation in the space war AU. What I also love are our listeners and our listeners' questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr... I'm a physically disabled person who just moved away from home for college after a very sheltered childhood, which unfortunately means I'm having my first confrontations slash reckonings with ableism. I feel like I don't see ableism talked about or referenced in media much, so I was wondering, are there any X-Men stories where ableism slash disability is addressed or referenced at all, or where the mutant metaphor could be read to apply to us disabled folks? Thank you. So,
1: the answers to those are rarely and pretty much everywhere, respectively. Um, there is very, very, very little explicit conversation about disability, um, and therefore about ableism in X-Men books. The place to look for that if you are a Marvel reader specifically is Daredevil, and I'm going to say specifically the Wade and Starsky runs.
0: Yes, uh, both excellent runs in general for that matter.
1: As far as the second question, I have maintained for a fairly long time that if you're going to look at mutation as a metaphor for a specific marginalized Earth class, disability makes by far and away the most sense to the point that it actually is is only limitedly a metaphor. And that a whole lot of mutations would also constitute disabilities.
0: Yeah, very much so. And, I mean, you occasionally do see uh, some overlap. Of course, Professor X is often in a wheelchair, and that is sometimes discussed in uh, ways both thoughtful and less so over the years.
1: Well, on a larger scale, the evolution of the X-Men's politics really, really reflects the evolution from the medical to social model of disability, specifically the transition from Xavier to Cyclops as as leadership of that
0: group. Oh, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about it that way with those uh, leaders, uh, especially as kind of the, the symbols of each era.
1: Yeah, like, that's that's the big thing that I keep on coming back to when it comes to how, how the X-Men interact with disability.
0: For real. Yeah, I think for me, the character through which that's been probably the most thoughtfully addressed is uh, actually Wizkid. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he first appeared in X-Terminators, and yeah, I mean, Wizkid is disabled, and a lot of his interactions with the world are through the lens of being uh, being upset at how people have have talked to him and treated him because of that that's actually addressed very thoughtfully in al ewing's run of sword where we see a much older whiz kid who despite the krakow resurrection protocols and despite the crucible uh is still a wheelchair user and talks about kind of why and how and how his interactions with the world have changed with that being a more complicated uh sort of situation to be in it's brilliantly done i mean al ewing sword is brilliant in general i think a lot of people gave it a miss just because it doesn't have x in the title but it's very much an x book and i think it's uh, also a very thoughtful one.
1: Jeff Holland asks on Tumblr, What are your feelings on the slow but steady villainization of Beast over the past, I guess, decade? I gotta say, I think it's been going on for a lot longer.
0: I would agree, Yeah. Um, In fact, I would say it's probably been going on since the mid-90s, since the time of the Legacy Virus. I mean, okay, to pull back a bit to the bigger picture, Beast becoming a villain hurts. It hurts so much, I miss the Bouncing Blue Beast, but like, it's good storytelling. And yeah, I think part of why it's good storytelling is that has been building for that long. The 90s and the Legacy Virus, that was where we first saw Beast starting to get... Really beaten down, really frustrated by his inability to fix super bad stuff through either superheroism or science. I mean, the legacy virus would be a thing for years and years and years, as much as Beast was constantly working on it and Moira was constantly working on it. And that's where we started to see his utilitarianism. That's where we started to see some of his interactions with, for instance, Mr. Sinister. And that would just sort of keep going, you know? There was trying to find a way to fix mutants dying out as a species after House of M and the Endangered Species backup stories and miniseries. There was when he brought the teen original five X-Men to the present to convince Cyclops to stop being a revolutionary years later. There was turning to dark magic when he himself was that time-displaced teen who was brought by his older self to the present to convince Cyclops to stop being a revolutionary. And like these days how far he's gone it's a really big step obviously like he's so goddamn evil at this point just so overwhelmingly evil but i should point out a number of months ago he did offhandedly mention that using his sciencey science he had sealed away the part of his personality from when he was on the avengers which was like his happiest most relaxed nicest era
1: that was when he and wonder man were perpetually stoned and watching gumby
0: Exactly! He was great then. Uh, apparently, modern villain Beast uh, doesn't like Gumby as much. So, I don't know. I mean, that might explain why he's so much uh, more extra evil these days. So, I I like it. I don't think it can go on forever without either just killing him or making some kind of a change. Honestly, I think at some point he'll probably revert to the old version. This is comics. That happens all the time. We'll see. But, overall, I dig it. What about you, Jay? I've, I've been ranting for a minute here.
1: I mean, I think I think you covered... Almost everything that I would have said, especially about sort of the organic arc it's been since the early legacy virus days. I'm thinking specifically of the, the stuff with Threnody and Sinister as kind of the first really strong seeds of that. But like you, I think I'm I'm mourning the character I had feelings about, but at the same time really reveling in the quality of the story that's being told.
0: Legit. And that's a fine line to, to uh, write in comics, you know? The ability to make a good story that hurts, but is a better story than the amount it hurts. I think that's working in Benjamin Percy's runs right now. And with that...
1: Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com.
0: Special thanks to Max Carleton for cold open assistance. New
1: episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com.
0: Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode.
1: Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com.
0: And please, take a moment to rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps.
1: Next week, Domino rejoins X-Force. And
0: punching ensues.
1: To no one's surprise.
0: I am a man of principles, Deathbird.
1: Principles? Or inhibitions?
0: Okay, Jay, you can't do the parrot voice. You just can't. It's going to kill all the drama. (laughs)
1: I'm sorry. (laughs) <laughs> All right, Matt, please cut that.
0: Oh, no, I say, Matt, leave that part in the episode. Like, No, no, admission. that's a tag. Oh, okay. Well, anyway.